This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Newsweek reports on a new poll that finds feminists may be subconsciously protected from certain gender stereotypes and as a result work harder in math and other fields typically associated with men. But it also states that feminist ideologies may cause these women to also react more harshly toward men. Now that is nothing new in the history of feminism, but what kind of price have we paid as a society over the course of this war between the sexes? Has feminism made women happier and more fulfilled? Or has feminism led us astray from some of the most basic truths about male and female, about the home and about our families? We are going to talk about this today with conservative columnist Mona Charon. She is a contributor for National Review and serves as a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Her book is called Sex Matters, How Modern Feminism Lost Touch with Science, Love and Common Sense. And Mona, great to have you with us. How are you? Fine. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You say feminism has become a piety, and I thought that was a really interesting way to put it. What do you mean that feminism has become a piety? Well, it started off as something that was controversial, and then uh, it, it moved into various other realms, very contentious. But now um, I think most people would call it a, would agree that it's a piety, that is, um, you, you're just expected to genuflect before feminism and agree that feminism is right, even if people are uncomfortable about identifying as feminists, and polls keep showing that. Um, so my book is a little bit of a, it's not an anti-feminist book. What it is is a, is a redefinition. Um, I want what is good for men and women, and I want equality for men and women, but I point out there are a couple of areas where the modern feminist movement took some wrong turns. One right. was in endorsing the sexual revolution, and the other was in denying that there are any important differences between men and women. Right. Oh, those are such big topics and so important. So you go back a little bit to trace the roots of modern feminism. How far back would you go? Would you go to the time of Susan B. Anthony? Was that really the beginnings of feminism? And then it really took it actually, a... Yeah, it actually goes back even further. You can look at the writings of Mary Wollstonecraft, or you can look at John Stuart Mill, the great libertarian philosopher in Great Britain who uh, wrote in defense of vindication of the rights of women. Um, so there's a long tradition that would go back, stretch back to the mid-1800s, and then, of course, in the later 1800s and early 19th century, uh, early 20th century, rather, you had um, the suffragette, suffragette movement um, and... Uh, so there have been a number of iterations. My critique is basically with the second, what's called the second wave feminism that began in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and that was, I think that was the time when feminism joined with uh, the new left, with Marxism, uh, and, um, and, and really took some, some uh, unfortunate wrong turns. Yes. It kind of declared war between the sexes. It, it tried to portray women as being a class, kind of like the, the proletariat in the Marxist 
formulation. Right. That women were an oppressed class and men were the class of oppressors. And uh, that's really an absurd way to look at something as complicated as human uh, interactions. People are born into families. Everyone has a mother and a father. The notion that, um, you know, Marie, uh, Marie Antoinette um, and, uh, and, you know, the, 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 the suffragettes were, were the same class is, is absurd. Yeah. The notion that, you know, your cleaning lady and uh, the Queen of England are in the same class. No, sorry, that doesn't really work. <laughs> no, it doesn't work at all. It was kind of interesting, too, because you pointed out when you were discussing Betty Friedan and her book, The Feminine Mystique, that Betty Friedan herself didn't really disclose to people who she actually was. And so from the outset, it was a bit of a deception to try to paint herself as this oppressed housewife she actually had very strong political leanings all along sure um not only that um she had a she had a very unhappy personal life and um uh though i do point out that among the um second wave feminists betty Friedan was the only one actually who uh the main ones who had children and i think that later in life this caused her to reevaluate her feminism and uh to to um, kind of retract a lot of her uh, anti-family views. But by then it was too late. The train had already left the station. But, um, but yeah, regarding her own background, you know, she was kind of a, um, she was a, a hard left, you know, union organizer type. She belonged to and worked for the biggest um, communist-affiliated union in the country. Um, and um, while she wasn't a communist per se later on in her career, I think her radical uh, beginning certainly affected her outlook. Right. Well, so now at that point in history, when you have the 60s and then later the 70s and and they got the ball rolling on equal rights for women, the ERA, all of that, what were the premises upon which they were operating? The victim narrative, was that properly maybe the main one that was really undergirding everything? Yeah, they did. They did see. Here's, here's where I think. Look, there were aspects of feminism that I agree with. Um, it was uh, it was wrong that women were not being uh, paid the same for the same jobs as men. Um, it was it was rather absurd that women um, at a certain point in our history needed their husbands' uh, sign off in order to get their credit under their own name in certain situations. That sort of thing. Um, some women weren't allowed to. In some states, women weren't allowed to serve on juries. I'm glad all of that has been has been uh, reformed, mm-hmm. um, and to the degree the feminists had a role in that, good. I give them a tip of the hat. But the great thrust of the feminist ideology in the 1970s was that they believed that the family itself was a prison for women. They believed that family life and the sexual mores that undergird family life—that is, chastity for women and and uh, chivalry for men. All of those things had to be tossed out if women were going to have the kind of lives that the feminists envisioned for them. So they endorsed, so they they did, um, you know, they, they bristle at this and they say, how can you say we're anti-family? And I say, read my book. I have chapter and verse about how anti-family they were. They believed that the family was a prison. And so they did a lot to um, undermine families. They endorsed uh, you know, no fault divorce and uh, and unwed childbearing and um, you know sexual promiscuity. They were for all of those things because theirs was a vision of freedom first and right. responsibility second. Right, right. And abortion on demand would go hand in hand with that as well. Exactly, exactly. 
Yeah, it, and it, it's really odd because even Gloria Steinem eventually got married. The famous quote of hers about a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle, and even she came around eventually. Yeah, um, though she never did have children. Look, you know, it's kind of sad. Um, a lot of the most pioneering feminists had very unhappy family lives themselves. Hmm. Um they either were abused when they were young, um, which was the case with uh, Shulamith Firestone and Andrea Dworkin. Um, and uh, um, Gloria Steinem had a very difficult childhood. Her mother was, um, her father left the family. Her mother had mental illness. She, from a very young age, had to care for her, uh, for her ill mother. And that's a hard, hard childhood. Yeah. Um, and um, one has sympathy for it, but I don't have, um, I, I don't think that our sympathy for their personal plight should blind us to the fact that that may have curdled their views of what family life is and can be and is for most of us. You know, for most people, family life is a source of great comfort and joy and it's a source of great security for women. And the feminists help to undermine that. Women are more insecure now than they ever have been. Yeah. And they're asked to shoulder more burdens now than they ever used to be. Well, that's so true. And that's one of the things I want to get into because we have the Me Too movement that has gained so much ground in recent days. And yet there are a lot of people who are asking, well, some of this doesn't go together because when you were trying to preach sexual freedom without any inhibitions and now you're kind of dialing back and saying, uh, you know, where's the line anymore? If you teach men there's no line, then how do you draw the line? And, And it's raised new problems, hasn't it, in the long run? Absolutely. I mean, in my opinion, uh, and I've said this in the book, the Me Too movement is in a way, it's been misinterpreted. It has. Hang on just a moment. We'll pick up on this after the break. Mona Charon with us. Her book is Sex Matters. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. We're partnering with Bible League International on Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa. In many parts of countries like Kenya, Tanzania, and Mozambique, nine of 10 Christians are denied God's word by corrupt governments and majority religions. They've never been able to read 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares on him for he cares for you. Reading that promise of God means everything to you and me. And now it will mean so much to these Bibleless Christians in Africa when you respond. Here's Pastor Abel. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. $5 sends one Bible, $100 sends 20, and a limited time match will double your gift and help us meet our goal of sending 1,500 Bibles to Africa. Please call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, or there's an Open the Floodgates banner at JanetMefford.com. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a healthcare program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new healthcare program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that offers affordable healthcare sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families 
offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. How has modern feminism lost touch with science, love, and common sense? It is all covered in the new book, Sex Matters, by conservative columnist Mona Charon, who's joining us. Mona, you had mentioned the Me Too movement right before we had to go to break, and I wanted to let you pick up on that again and, and talk a little bit about some of the problems that feminism has today when it comes to the Me Too movement. So the Me Too movement, in my judgment, has been um, misinterpreted. A lot of people are seeing it as a revival of a feminist uh, sensibility, but I think you can see it um, as a as a rejection uh, or a cry of pain from modern women about the sexual ecosystem they've inherited, partly as a result of the feminist mistake in endorsing the sexual libertinism of our time. Yeah. Um, women are uncomfortable. Women are angry about have, you know, living in a world where it's just expected that men will be pawing them and, and, uh, you know, attempting to, uh, to, to get away with whatever they can. You know, well, how did that happen? How did we get to a point where women, where men are such boors and such louts when it comes to sexuality? And, uh, okay, you can say men, there have always been some men who haven't been gentlemen, and that's surely the case. But at least we used to have a standard about how men were supposed to behave. In the modern world, in the modern sexual ecosystem that we have, men don't really know where the limits are because nobody knows where the limits are. And so they try more often to get away with what they can, and especially powerful men. And, um, you know, women are saying, we've had enough. Yeah. We hate this. Yep. And I also would suggest that if you look at the um, so-called campus rape crisis, you see the same phenomenon. Um, you know, there have been a lot of conservatives who have been saying, oh, there is no campus rape crisis and it's all made up. Well, I think that's the wrong way to approach it. I think what we have to be seeing here is the pain that these women are feeling because of this sexual free-for-all that is maybe okay from a man's point of view, but women do not like it and, yeah. and are feeling very put upon. Yeah. Oh, it's so true. And when you talk about some of the boorishness of some men, it's obviously not all men. You say in the book that when feminists reject marriage and sex roles, they end up abdicating the civilizing role that women have in men's lives. Can you extrapolate on that a little bit? Because I think that's such a significant point. Yeah, <laughs> women, um, women are the civilizing forces in most societies. Women, uh, by enforcing rules about sex, access to sex, about, about demanding of men that they be faithful and that they be monogamous, um, <clears throat> set up rules that help to civilize men and help to keep society going. And um, we are seeing that decay to a significant degree in our, in our time. Uh, because women were, I think, persuaded against their best interests that the sexual revolution was, was something that would be good for them, that would be freeing. Um, but instead, it wound up denying to women, as I say, the kind of um, monogamy and security that they actually need um, from men. And it denied to men a model of what it means to be a, a, a good 
solid citizen. Yes. That men should be expected to, um, to control their sexual urges, to respect women, to treat them as a little bit more delicate than men. You know what? Feminists rejected that so harshly. They said, I don't want you to hold doors for me and I don't want you to, you know, uh, defer to me and so on. But that's kind of necessary. Look what happens when men are not taught to be gentlemen. Yep. I mean, then you get people, then you get Harvey Weinstein's as <laughs> far as the eye can see. That's it. It's true. It's true. I remember being on a bus one time and I was nine months pregnant and there wasn't one man who would give up his seat for me. And I, yeah. I just said, what is going on with this culture that not one guy in this bus sees how uncomfortable I am and at least would offer, even if I didn't accept I know. it. Yeah. It's because they don't want to be trusted. It's because they've been told so often that that's offensive. Yeah. Oh. And so... Yeah. It's crazy. Now, when you talk about the the bad effects of feminism on the sexual revolution, that that's such an important topic. But the other thing you mentioned is the denial of the differences between male and female. And that's part of what we're, we're dealing with here. Men are confused because some women want them to open doors. Other women will get offended and punch them if they open a door. So how has this affected, would you say, in a broader sense, the family itself and how we see one another and how male and female fit together or ought to? Well, first of all, the feminists um, were, they really were, you know, the, the, um, the uh, stereotype that they push back against and say is unfair is they say, we're not man-haters, you know, and, and perhaps many are not, but some are, and, and that was certainly a big part of the second wave message was that men were, um, men were, were just evil. And even today on college campuses, when you um, look at how feminists interpret the rape crisis, you know, they say that it's not, they don't see that it's the result of the sexual revolution and the kind of anything goes culture. They say it's something that arises from toxic masculinity. Yes. Well, <laughs> when you tell men that, that their essential nature is toxic, poisonous, um, this is going to create a backlash, and it has. And there is so much bitterness between men and women now. Uh, that I find really sad and unnecessary, and it doesn't conduce to human thriving. Um, and and then I would I talk a great deal in Sex Matters about the basic science of sex differences yes. because that was another mistake that the feminists made, which was um, they they insisted that all of the things that we notice that are different about men and women uh, that they have different interests and different priorities and uh, they have different behaviors and fantasies and many, many things. They said, oh, that's all socially constructed. That's all just culture. And, you know, look, culture, I would be silly to deny that culture affects behavior. I mean, of course it does. I mean, in Saudi Arabia, women go around covered up from head to toe in a burqa and, uh, and uh, in and in uh, Miami Beach, they barely wear anything at all. <laughs> um, but um, but so culture, of course, matters. But there are certain universals about human behavior and interests and so forth. And when something is found in every culture and in every time and place, you have to begin to think that maybe there's something innate there. And there are certain things. For example, no matter what country you go to. Men are more interested, when it comes to finding a mate, men are more interested in physical attractiveness, and women are more interested in resources, that is, whether the person, whether the man can support them. Right. Um, and that's a universal. Um, hmm, 
could that be because women are the ones who get pregnant and have to take care of babies and they need support? Yes. Could that be maybe one of the reasons? Yes. <laughs> um, but, um, but, you know, there are other things about men and women that are different that's, that show up at such an early stage of life, like in the first days and hours after birth, that are, again, are universally uh, noticed. And, and if that's the case, it's a little too early um, in life for socialization to account for it, that, you know, for example, baby girls are more responsive to a human voice and baby boys more to a, a moving object. That's, those are just innate differences. Yep. Um, right. and, um, and there's no point in denying them. And I think it has, um, in a way, um, harmed the feminist um, message because people... People know that there are differences between men and women. Any parent, any, especially any preschool teacher, you know, yes. enough to know that it's silly to suggest this is all socialized. And I think they've heard their cause because people know it's wrong and science shows it's wrong. And um, they're so worried about anybody looking at these differences and possibly reaching the conclusion that men are superior to women that they're afraid to grapple with reality. Well, I know men are not superior to women. They're just different. And it doesn't scare me to acknowledge it and say, yes, it's true. And it's even really important right. that we have different tastes, different needs, and uh, different desires for our lives. Yeah, it is. And it's gone to such extremes when you're talking about the obvious differences between male and female that you can see in your children. I remember when my little boy would be playing with trains and my daughter would pick them up and they'd begin to have a relationship with each other. You know, they'd be (laughs) talking to each other. Thomas is here and Scholowy is talking to, you know, that sort of thing. It's built in and yet they focus on things like making sure you have gender neutral toy sections. That one just escapes me. What, What are we gaining by having gender neutral toy sections? in Toys R Us or Target. They will never give up on this. You know, they have been after the toys now for decades, thinking that if we can just give them neutral toys. And I cannot tell you how many liberal academics I have read who said, you know, I tried to raise my kids with gender neutral toys and the boys would take a stick of wood and they would say, bang, 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 you're dead. (laughs) And the girls would take the stick of wood and say, good stick, you know, let's go down for your nap. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I know you just can't mess with nature. It is what it is. Exactly. Yeah, that's uh, true. You know, as as Horace, the Roman scholar said, um, you can drive nature out with a pitchfork, but she will always hurry back. That's so true. That's so true. Well, it's interesting what's changed over the years. And now you have, for example, more young women being pro-life, for example. And I'm wondering how you see modern feminism going forward. Do you think it still has the power that it once did? Is it dying off or just mutating? How do you see it going into the future? Well, I do think um, it's still a a strong force. But if you look at polling, um, you will see that most Americans, only a minority of American women like to identify as feminists, and an even smaller number in Great Britain, for example. And uh, so there's something that has gone awry with the message, um, even after all these decades. There's something that they're doing wrong that's alienating large numbers of women. And women say they find feminists too extreme, they find them to be hostile to men, and men certainly think that feminists are hostile to them. Um, and so um, I do think that there is an openness to hear um, about how you can believe in full human equality between the sexes, but not have to buy into the notion of full sameness, right? Of right. course, we're equals morally, ethically, politically, and in every other way. 
but we are different and we have uh, we make different choices for example um, the, the so-called gender gap in earnings is purely a byproduct of women making different choices yeah. women choosing to cut back so that they can take care of their kids absolutely Mona Chair we've got to end it there but Sex Matters is the book Mona thank you so much for being with us my pleasure you're listening to Janet Meffer today This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford today. I love this verse from Philippians chapter four. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Especially in our own day, we need a reminder to not worry about anything. The question is how to achieve that. So we're going to get some help today from Dr. Winfred Neely, who is professor of hermeneutics, homiletics, and pastoral studies at Moody Bible Institute of Chicago. Today, we'll be talking about his book, which is called How to Overcome Worry, Experiencing the Peace of God in Every Situation. And so good to have you here, Dr. Neely. Thank you for joining us. Janet, I'm honored to be here. Honored to be here on uh, on the air with you. Oh, you're so kind. It's our honor to have you here. So I have to ask you straight up as we begin this discussion, do you tend to be a worrier? Do you struggle with this? Uh, yes, I do. I, I do. I, I, I'm, I'm not a worrier per se, but I do struggle when with difficult problems and situations and when things are beyond my control, if I'm not careful, I'll find myself in the middle of a uh, puddle of anxiety. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. I think this is something every Christian wrestles with to some extent, yes. because it, a lot of us will say, where does the line be? Where do you draw the line really between concern, important, you know, adequate concern and worry? What is that blurred line there that so many of us can't figure out? I think the line is is faith, really. It, it, it seems to me that concern, we, we, I mean, you're right, we ought to be concerned, we'd have legitimate concern, we'd care about, uh, about people. We, are, we, we, we certainly are not to, uh, you know, shirk our responsibilities and things that we have to take care of in life. Um, so we have to be concerned. We're, we're told to be concerned in Scripture. You know, Philippians 2, Paul says uh, in describing Timothy, I have no one of like mind who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Yes. Interestingly enough, the, the, the word that's translated by concerned in Philippians 2 is the same word that's translated as anxious in chapter 4, be anxious for nothing. Wow. So that it is context and usage that determines meaning. So the terms, the, the realities are related, but there's a clear distinction between the two. And it seems to me that um, worry is concerned that's handled and addressed without taking Christ into consideration. Mm. It is it's our focus is on the situation, the person, the problem, or that even imaginary problem or whatever. 
but it's focused on that and it's not focused on Christ. It is concerned that it's, it's concerned, worry is concerned that it's separated from the grace of God, from the power of God, the wisdom of God, the love of God, from the person of God. And it's rooted in the assumption that we alone have to deal with this issue mm-hmm. and that we have to do it in our own strength and under our own power and we're not factoring God into the equation. Yeah, that's great. I love the way you've defined worry because that really is the the root of the problem. When we are more concerned about how we're going to solve something or fretting about something, we are denying really uh, the grace of God, the person of God, the person of Christ. What about this important point that you're making here when you're saying that the line between concern and worry really is faith for a Christian who struggles with worry. Sometimes I will hear from people or I will even say this to myself. I want to stop worrying, but the more I worry, the more I worry. And so, you know, how do I get out of this circular problem where my worry begets more worry that I'm not worried enough. And I'm now worried that I am worrying those sorts of things. Well, I think, uh, and I say this respectfully, I think first of all, that God's people need to relax a bit. Yes. <laughs> Good. <laughs> That's great. Just, just relax. I think we need to slow down. Janet, my sense is that we are so rushed and so busy that the idea of slowing down makes us feel guilty. Hmm. So that's another element that's into it. If I slow down to read the scriptures thoughtfully and carefully and sort out exactly what's happening in the presence of God and think through how I am reacting, how am I responding? Is my thinking biblical or have I adopted a fallen coping mechanism? And taking time to sort this stuff out sometimes leads God's people with a guilt complex when in fact that's one of the things that we need that we need to do. I like that very, very much. Yeah, when we talk about worry and the root of worry, what would you say, uh, as we talk about a, a lack of faith in the person of God and the grace of God, sure. how do you stop it once it begins? If you really are in a cycle and you need, and you say, I know I need to trust the Lord with this problem, what advice right. would you give to the Christian for really resting and trusting in the Lord in that situation? Well, that's very good, and that is exactly the situation that Philippians 4, 6 addresses. Hmm. Those words, be anxious for nothing, uh, and the original original are very interesting in, in terms of construction. It literally means to stop an action that's already in progress. Oh, wow. So, so the idea be anxious for nothing, in other words, is anxiety. worry has come into your life. You realize that you're anxious, and the force of this verb is to stop an action that's already in process, progress, rather. So this is not to say that God's people will not experience worry or that the Christian will not find themselves um, and anxious. The, I, the point is, when you recognize that that is what's happened, God says stop. So it seems to me what, what Christians need to understand, they need to be able to differentiate uh, between worry and concern and to, you know, be self-aware enough in the presence of God to recognize, wait, I'm, 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 I'm worrying now. I'm, I'm more than concerned. I'm worried, and I need to stop that. And it is a faith-based 
grace-enabled, spirit-empowered stopping. It's not something we do in our own strength, but we certainly cooperate with God in the process. That's a really important point you've just made, too, that we are not capable many times of stopping our own worry any more than we can stop our own sins sometimes. That's right. This is where the Lord comes in. Now, when you have that issue, uh, you know, for example, when you're referencing the Philippians 4 passage, having no anxiety about anything, it goes on to say, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. It reminds me of that old line from Martin Luther, pray and let God worry. And I yeah. say that all the time because I think that's such a great line. How do you you know, recommend to Christians that they approach the Lord in those moments of worry and cast themselves on the Lord in order to you know, really be helpless before him and allow him to deal with us in that way where we can not worry anymore? Well, I think it's first of all, and Christians know this, at at least instructed Christians uh, should know this, that God is not surprised. He is not uninformed about what's going on in our lives. And, And so what I encourage, what I encourage Christians to do is to uh, pray and talk to God honestly about what is troubling you. Yeah. One of the one of the big lessons that we learn from the Psalms is this: the Psalms teach us to be honest with God. <laughs> if the psalmist is depressed, he says it to God. If 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 he feels alone or abandoned, he 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 tells God this. Yes. And so these are the kinds of honest faith-based conversations that we need to have with God. We need to tell Him, Lord, I'm worried, and I'm worried sick. Mm-hmm. I have a medical procedure tomorrow, and I am worried, and I am scared, and I, and I can't control it, and I and I and I, I need you to help me. Mm-hmm. So these are the kinds of, of 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 conversations that we need to have, and I think as it seems to me that when we come to God in faith, based on His Word, ex- uh, talking to Him about what's troubling us, and again, it's not that he does not know what's troubling us. He, he already knows. But he wants us to trust him. That's exactly right. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll come back with Dr. Winfred Neely. His book is How to Overcome Worry. Stay with us. We'll be back. After taking the morning after pill, this mom immediately felt sick and nauseated as she tried to end her pregnancy. While searching for medical care, she found a preborn center where she hoped to rule out that she was pregnant. I had an ultrasound done right then and there. After hearing the baby's heartbeat, I instantly thanked God and said, may your will be done, Lord. I'm seven months pregnant now. I thank God every day for my little miracle. Preborn centers are the largest providers of free ultrasounds in America, introducing moms in crisis to the life growing inside of them and sharing the gospel in action. When a mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she'll choose life 80% of the time. Will you join Preborn in the cause for life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. 855-402-BABY or there's a Preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 
Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new health care program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the health care program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a health care sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today, and this is a book that's really going to help a lot of us. It's called How to Overcome Worry, Experiencing the Peace of God in Every Situation by Dr. Winfred Neely, who is Professor of Hermeneutics, Homiletics, and Pastoral Studies at Moody Bible Institute. Dr. Neely, we were talking before we went to the break about the the way that we approach the Lord when we are worrying, and you rightly said the Psalms are such a good uh, way of learning how to pray David when he was uh, upset or anxious about whatever happened to be going on in his life, and there was a lot going on in his life, was just honest before the Lord and said, I'm, I'm worried about this, I'm, I'm grieving over that. But for that, for the people who struggle with anxiety that isn't of that variety, what do you say? For example, you have women who might have postpartum depression. Or you might have somebody who has panic attacks or something like that. Would there be different advice given? Certainly, we all need to pray and we all need to go before the Lord, regardless of the source of our anxiety. But what about those special situations where you say, I'm having some kind of hormone imbalance and I'm, I'm just I have so much anxiety, I can't I can't breathe almost. What would you say to those people? Well, I would tell them, take your medicine and fall down and thank God. Fall yeah. on your knees and thank God that you live in the 21st century. Amen. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I do. I do wonder how God's people managed for the last several thousand years. Yeah. I do wonder, but we. I, I think these are some of the means that we have out of disposition or expressions of the common grace of God, for which I personally am deeply thankful. Me too. Here's another thing too that people, folk, might want to consider: Are you getting enough rest? Mm. I had a student of mine coming to my office several years ago and he sat down in my office and he lost it. Oh, Dr. Neely, I can't take it. Oh, Dr. Neely, I can't take it. I can't take it anymore, Dr. Neely. You know, so he was kind of in his own world of, of, I can't take it for a few moments. And, and after he was done, I looked at him and I said, young man, how much sleep are you getting at night? <laughs> Three hours. Uh, what kind of food are you eating? Pizza and Dunkin' Donuts. Oh, no. And, and I told him, I said, well, this is what I need you to do. I need you to take the rest of the day off, go back to the residence hall and go to bed, get eight hours of sleep, and eat some wholesome meals. Get your blood sugar back in whack and come and normalize. You're going to come and see me in about two or three days. I saw him a week later. He looked like he was risen from among the dead. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's something that simple that you're just not taking care of your body. And so, yeah. yeah. But, and seeing the thing is, you know what's interesting? Janet, there was one occasion when the Lord Jesus Christ raised a girl back to 
to life. And you know what he said next? Give her something to eat. I just find it absolutely amazing at how practical Jesus is. Yes. He under he under Jesus under Jesus made us we are whole persons. We have we have a body, we we, we certainly have a soul and we need to take care of ourselves as whole persons and I think this is a part of this. We just can't be so overly spiritual about this and say that I, I'm I'm lacking faith when in fact I need to go to bed and get some rest. Yes, that's good, because sometimes when you're extremely tired or extremely, uh, you know, wanting in some area, you're hungry or you're eating junk food or what have you, you, it does affect the way that you think. It really does. Sure, sure it does. You know, I think that was a part of Elijah's problem in 1 Kings 19, when he he was so down in the dumps that he didn't want to live anymore, and he asked God to take his life. Two things God did. God gave him sleep. Instead of taking his life, and he gave him some something to eat and something to drink, may have been dehydrated. Yeah, that was exactly the passage I was thinking about. Elijah and fleeing to Horeb, and yes, and then he he gets the sleep and he gets the food. It, it you yeah. know makes a big difference. Now, yeah. when we talk about how we should pray, what we should say, you talk about the difference between prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving requests. There are different directives here in that passage in Philippians four. Right. How would you differentiate between some of those? different aspects of prayer and how they ought to be utilized in overcoming worry. Right. Well, prayer is just general. And the, the term that's translated by prayer in our English Bibles is a general term for prayer. It's broad and comprehensive and just carries with it the, the ideas of, of talking to God and conversation with God, marked by reverence, trust, and humility. So it's this general term. Supplication, on the other hand, highlights our specific need. Hmm. And, 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 and we, we, are, we, we need something. We're conscious of the fact that we're needy. And our um, prayer expresses this need uh, to God. And we are looking to Him to meet the need. That's, that's supplication. And, of course, there's thanksgiving, which, if I understand the Scriptures correctly, will continue on for all eternity. Even when we are in heaven, uh, we will be giving God thanks. So it's just that Thanksgiving is just this, this posture of, of, of gratitude for all that God has done, is doing, and is going to do in our lives, and all that he's going to do in the, in the current circumstance in which we find ourselves. And, of course, requests are specific, again, specific, detailed um, request for which we ask God. It presupposes that we have thought thought things through, and we have a clear idea of what we need from God. Uh, thus, we make a request. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't mean that all of our requests will be granted. Right. Sometimes our Heavenly Father says yes. Sometimes He says no. Sometimes He says wait a while. But the big, the big. Um, takeaway from Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is this, that God promises peace in all circumstances, whether or not he in his infinite wisdom decides to grant or not to regret, not to grant our request. That's right. 
That's right. Yeah, so when you say worry is overcome by expecting peace from God, as the passage says, in the, you know, as you do these things, the peace of God which passes all understanding will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. All believers have peace with God because of Jesus right. Christ. What is the peace from God? Well, the peace from God is experiential. Peace with God is, is, is relational, it's judicial, whereas the peace of God is the peace that God grants to us in real experience through the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit okay. based on the Word of God. And so the, the, peace of, the peace of God is the peace of God himself. The Lord never has anxiety attacks, and he's been marked by infinite, incredible peace from all eternity. Yes. And he gives this peace to us when we yield our lives to him and take him, uh, take him literally um, at his word. And so this is the supernatural, spirit-powered experience in the heart and mind of the follower of Christ. That, and, and his peace then protects the heart and mind from the vicious assaults of worry. It is not to say that the situation has changed. Indeed, it may not have changed. But what it is saying is that in the midst of whatever we are going through in life, God's peace can can guard our hearts and minds and protect us. That is so good. So right. So when you talk in the book about the place of biblical meditation, which is so important for Christians to, to, to take the word of God and to just soak in it and think about it and pray about it and so forth, what would be your advice uh, to somebody who is worrying uh, as far as the, the benefit of biblical meditation and how you might be able to incorporate that into your life as you are um, spending time with the Lord? Well, I think the art of vigorous thinking about the scriptures is one that we need to recover in our in our 21st century postmodern post-Christian world. Um, the psalmists talk a lot about meditating upon God in the night watches, and in biblical meditation does not mean that we are passive or that we just open ourselves up to impressions from without. Mm -hmm. Biblical meditation is vigorous thinking about the Word of God. So I take a portion of Scripture, for example, be anxious for nothing, and the idea is to stop the progress of anxiety, the worry, and in, in, in your life, and I think about that. Yes. I, I, I think about that. Vigorously. vigorously. <laughs> and uh, what happens is that the Spirit of God is working through that process to open our minds to understand Scripture that we cannot understand otherwise, and we gain insight, and we gain strength, and we gain the nourishment from these texts, and we're strengthened as a result. I love it. Well, the name of the book is How to Overcome Worry, and it was so wonderful to have Dr. Winfred Neely with us. Thank you, Dr. Neely. I feel so much better having talked to you, and I know our listeners agree. Thanks again for being with us. Honored to be here. Thank you for having me, Janet. God God bless bless you. Take care. And thanks for joining us and Janet Mefford today. God bless you. We'll see you next time.
This hour of Janet Mefford today has been brought to you by Bible League International. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD.